Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> Luke chapter 11. And we'll start reading in verse 14. Um, this is a study I intend to continue on with, as I would mentioned before. Uh, so I saw no reason to not continue on with it today. Uh, so we have two new sections or chapters or events in the Lord's ministry chronologically that take place in this first section and then uh, some just a few comments on what takes place in the next. So Luke 11, verse 14 through 28 is where we'll begin as we look at the blasphemous accusations of being in league with Beelzebub. And that should sound familiar. This isn't the first time that this has taken place, and we'll comment on that as well. Luke 11, starting in verse 14, And he was casting out a devil, which Strong's defines as a spirit, a being inferior to God and superior to men. And as Jesus was casting out a devil, and it was dumb, and it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, which Strong's, again, defines as the name of Satan, the prince of evil spirits. And they refer to him in the text as the chief of devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation or ruin, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub, and if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall, thou, shall they be your judges. But if the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in, and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. And it, be, and it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed or happy is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather happy or blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come again to this study, Lord, we ask that you would clear our minds of distractions, remove from our hearts hurt, both afflicted upon us and that that we uh, have not let go of ourselves through forgiveness. Father, we just ask that you make clear the path of truth. Make clear this week our path of righteousness in which we are to follow. Help us, Father, to urgently take to the community the truth of the gospel, that others would see you, not us, not us as bearers of you, but you. We ask, Father, that you continue to bless this study, continue to bless this church and the people here, Father. Send them their man quickly, Father, that they might be uh, continually about the work that you've called them unto. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some will hear this and follow that main service message and think, this is a great contradiction. Uh, I will tell you as a preacher, certainly didn't plan on those two messages being on the same day, but it is not a contradiction. Who does the Lord say will handle these blasphemous teachings? Who will handle those who have attempted to call out devils by another way? 
he will, which is the same instruction consistently with what he gave to John. John had better things to do. Jesus takes care of this work, not us. Here we see the Lord directly exercising some of the same power that he had given to the 70 back in Luke chapter 10. Uh, and just as a refresher, that was in verse 17, 18, and 19. We read there, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fallen from fall. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice that the impact of this miracle that we see in our text today, the impact of that miracle on the crowd was not that they themselves were sinners. He drives out a devil from one who is dumb, one who is unable to, to speak and interact with the crowd in a way in which they would have referred to as normal. Was their immediate response is, we are lost, we are sinners, we need this healing, we need this salvation? No, the response of the people that were gathered by, likely still quite a few Jews in this crowd, was that he is doing the work of Beelzebub. It is the power of Satan himself that this man heals. Kind of speaks to the idea of works then, doesn't it? Because at the witness of this, it didn't convince them that they needed a savior. It convinced them that dev the devil has power. That's the takeaway that they walk away with. What will set them free? What will truly have an impact on them is not miracles. It's not works. It's the truth. The gospel truth sets us free. Now, giving credence and honor to the devil, Beelzebub, is no light thing. This is actually the third time in this study alone that we've seen it happen. Uh, the first was in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37, which paralleled Mark chapter 3, verse 22 through 30. The second time was in Matthew 9, verses 32 through 34. And then, of course, this is our third event. Consider what we read in 2 Kings chapter 1. You can turn it if you'd like, 2 Kings chapter 1. We're just going to read the first four verses dealing directly with Beelzebub. Again, this isn't a light thing, not a light accusation for them to have made. We read in 2 Kings 1, 1, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in the upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. And I read that last part a little lighter, uh, but I want you to understand like this isn't a light thing that uh, Ahaziah would seek wisdom from Satan himself. And we see God responding in kind. He doesn't respond in a light way. And the messenger's faithful to deliver the message and leave. And now, not that it has no impact on the messenger himself, but it, the messenger wasn't personally involved. God sent him with a message to deliver it. God sending you, born-again believer, with a message to deliver it. It's very similar. During their first accusation of Jesus, it was stated in Mark 3, verses 28 and 29, Verily I say unto you, 
all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath, ne hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. I love how this is worded because it doesn't contradict the working of God. He's not stating here that those that blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, though they were saved, are now lost. Read what it says. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. They weren't saved. They were of a reprobate. They did not know salvation. They did not love God because he did not first love them. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit because they're able to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. All who are ungodly will blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They want nothing to do with God or his creation or his role in creating said creation. Jesus was very specific there in speaking of the Holy Ghost. And that's repeated in the next chapter of Luke. If we look ahead for just a moment in Luke chapter 12, verse 10. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. Remember, salvation does not come from works. It doesn't come from miracles, but rather we must be born again. We require regeneration. And again, our greatest example in this text is that by this amazing miracle in which the Lord should have been glorified, none seemingly received the word that they should be saved. None seemingly respected the fact, at least those speaking, respected the fact that this is God incarnate, that this is the Messiah that stands before us. Instead, the same accusations roll forward. He must be doing works in the name of Beelzebub, or we require a sign. And how many times have we seen that in the study so far? We require a sign. We require proof of your authority. I'm sad to say that even with proof of his authority, man doesn't respond the way he should. Turn with me. Probably the most common depiction of the Great Commission, the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. It says here, And Jesus came and spake unto them. So we know who the speaker is before we switch to red text. We know that it's Jesus. And here's what he says. All power, all authority, beloved, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now let's come into the situation a little bit. They require a sign. They require a sign. Here's a sign. This man was dead, buried, and rose again and stands before them, or is maybe even elevated before them in some fashion, and says, all power, all authority is given unto me. That ought to have our attention. We ought to rear up and say, my goodness, this is a thing. What will he say next? Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. How many drifted off, as I said, baptizing in the name of the Lord? But we do, don't we? He's still proving his authority. He's proving the authority he's commissioning to us. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you, if you mark your Bible, you should probably underline commanded you. Because he said in a text that we just read a couple weeks ago that his commandment was that we love others as he loved us. teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And that last statement is a comfort. But he proves with great authority, and even with a sign, 
because this, just as the sign of Jonah, as we also referenced recently, he was dead three days, rose again. He's there before them, still bearing the marks of our crucifixion in his flesh, and he's living, so he's proving that it has been conquered. So he's proved his authority with a sign, with words, says he's got all power, and then he begins to speak as to what we are to do as a result of his command. And the reason I say I'm afraid it probably doesn't matter too much is because we have all the authority we need right there, and yet many of us don't do it. Our hope and strength only comes from God and from God alone. Ephesians 6 verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The great tragedy of their contradiction in saying that the Lord Jesus works through the devil is made abundantly clear in Scripture. 1 John 3 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was and is sinless, therefore he could not be of the devil. He bore no fruit of the devil whatsoever. Even in this example, he bore no fruit of the devil whatsoever. He only bore fruit of the Messiah they were supposed to be watching for. In fact, as we see here in 1 John chapter 3, he was manifested for the very purpose of destroying the works of the devil. This is why he states that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to ruin or desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because he say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. Who then was of the devil? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read the whole thing. Ephesians 2, And you hath ye quickened, Paul says, and were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So what's been established already? We already know that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it's revealed in the very first two verses that we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were doing the work of the devil. And we were answering to that, and we were motivated by that. And in verse 3, we see, Among whom also we all had our conversation or citizenship in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You want some doctrine. Here we go. Listen to what happens in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, but his great love, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
So again, verse 12, make sure that the Gentiles in Ephesus know their place in all this. They line up with verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. If, we're, if there's two parties here, the devil's camp, or the devil's house, if you'll let me say it that way, and God's house, none of us were in God's house. Until you see verse 4, where it says, but God. In verse 13, you see, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, made nigh, were, were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the father now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of god verse 19 implies that verses 1 2 3 11 and 12 are correct that we weren't of the house of god before but now we are fellow citizens in the house of god verse 20 we are also built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets jesus christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. And verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. This had to be overcome. We were of the devil. Our flesh compelled us to only do the works of the devil. And by our fruits we revealed that we were answering to our daddy, the devil. It had to be overcome. And since we in the flesh were of the devil, we could not do the overcoming. We could not draw power from Satan to overcome Satan. We could not draw power from God because we were at enmity with God. If you're here and you're lost, I want you to hear that. You can only draw power from the devil. He's your master. And you can't draw the power you need to overcome the devil because that only comes from God. And in a lost state, you are at enmity with him. So there's only one logical conclusion. You must be born again. You must be saved. You must be regenerated. This has to be defeated. The flesh, the stony heart, it has to be broken or we will only know hell. Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism wherein also also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Oh, how we ought to love those words. Nailing it to his cross. If you had your own cross, it wouldn't be enough. It'd be a corruptible cross. It would be a mortal cross. But he, being a perfect sacrifice and a perfect high priest, was able to offer himself on his cross. And his cross was able to endure for the joy that was laid out before him for all time. Otherwise, it would only roll sins forward. 
But he nailed it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers. Whose principalities and powers? The devil's. Because he owned you. He spoiled principalities and powers because the devil is the prince of this world. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Think about what Joseph says of his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I wish we could have gotten that far. But when we think of the trial and the mockery that led to the crucifixion, and we think, what a dark, dark day for the Son of God. But beloved, he was making a show openly that he was breaking down and spoiling principalities and powers. He had the joy laid out before him. And there was no doubt he'd be triumphant. No doubt way back in Genesis 3 that the tree of life would rise victorious over our sinful nature. It was never wavering. He was steadfast, unmoved, and dedicated to this one purpose. We read words like he was a sheep led to the slaughter, and we think, oh, how awful, and we should, because it was our sin. But for him, he was taking it to the, taking it to the mat. He was taking it before the, before the Jews themselves, who were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. He was laying before them the powers of the devil. Some will say, well, they probably weren't looking for it. Of course they were. Three times they said he was using the powers of the devil. Three times they said, you must show us a sign. Three times they tempted God himself to prove he was who he said he was. They knew what they were talking about. They rejected him. It's not as simple as they misunderstood who he was or that they didn't recognize him. When we read Deacon Stephen's words, it's very clear. They rejected God. We don't really have a lot of time left to play light with it, do we? They rejected him. They openly said no. They openly said we prefer religion. And they've done it since Genesis 1. When the world had a king, they said, let us have a king like everybody else. And God gave them Saul. Over and over and over again, God's chosen people openly rejected him. Still don't believe it? What happened when they sent scouts? And God didn't tell them to send scouts, but they sent scouts and God permitted it. And they came back with an evil report. And it wasn't even unanimous. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, This is the promised land. Let us go and take it. God will be for us. But all the multitude, wasn't 30 people there that day, beloved. Thousands, thousands of people embraced the evil report and said, We can't go in. There's giants in the land. And they openly rejected the promise of God. We can say in a nutshell, that doesn't make sense. God led them a great distance. He pulled them out of Egypt. They were a nation inside of a nation, and he pulled them out, and he broke off all ties, and they whined and longed for what they left behind in Egypt forever, and God bare with them. And some thought they had a better way in the earth. Swallowed them up. Bye-bye, Korah. And they get to this point after everything they'd been through, and they still choose to believe an evil report instead of the God that made all things possible for them. Remember how they got to Egypt to begin with? There's a great famine in the land. No one had a chance of surviving. 
except that God used Joseph to preserve, his, to preserve Egypt, if you'll allow me to say so, for the very purpose of protecting his people. That's why he did what he did with Egypt. God had done all of that for them, preserving the promised seed all the way through. They openly rejected him. Verses 24 and 20, uh, through 26 of our text illustrates the danger of neutrality. The empty life is only an opportunity for Satan to do more damage. So you say, I've not openly rejected him, but I've not openly and wildly with crazy eyes embraced him. I'm in the middle. That's a safe place to be. No, the Lord vomits out lukewarmness. Keep that in mind. He spews forth the lukewarm church. It's gross. It's, it's abhorrence to him. It's offensive to him. Well, what do you want from us, preacher? I want for you to love God openly, unashamedly, and boldly, and proclaim it to the world. Because that's what Jesus said. He didn't take some of the power. He said all power in heaven and in earth made all of this possible for me to come and be before you today and tell you to go teach all nations what I have done. And those he was talking to had observed everything we've studied thus far and everything that comes next that we won't get to. And he said, teach them those things. Because God has committed all authority unto me to bring it to you. Take this very seriously and get your crazy eyes on and go to the world with it. And go out to everyone and give them the gospel. Neutrality is not an option. Staying in the middle, you hide the gospel from those who need it most. And I think that carries enough shame, I don't need to pour anything out on it. While the parable applies especially to the nation of Israel, cleansed of its idolatry, it also applies to people today who do not know the difference between reformation and regeneration. It applies today to those who will continually want to come before the church and rededicate their lives, but never actually dedicate a moment to Him. You know what dedicating your life to God means? You're going to throw some things away. You're going to stop doing things the way you've always done it and start doing it the way God has instructed for you to do it. That's what dedicating your life to Him. Now, rededicating your life means I'm going to give Him this page and I'm going to keep this much for myself. And then rededicating your life means I'm going to give him that page too. I'm going to keep this for myself. And then rededicating your life says, well, I'm going to take this one back. But I'm going to keep all this for myself. And round and round and round and round we go. How many times did he go to the cross? Once. Don't try to rededicate your life. Simply dedicate your life. Don't try to make him one of your top priorities. Make him your top priority. You'll find another job. You'll find another girlfriend. You'll find new hobbies. You'll find other ways to survive. Multitudes have. Multitudes have for centuries. Neutrality is not an option for a Christian. And if you're somehow living a life of neutrality, you're probably not a Christian. Look at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. There was a couple who lied to the church about how much they sold their house for. And did they get a stern talking to? 
Now today, folks would say that it's none of the church's business what I sold my house for. But that day they lied. And that night they died. We ought to start looking at it that way. Are you lying before God? Or making it somebody else's fault before God? Because that's lying too. Are you trying to stay neutral? Not too hot? Not too cold? Then you aren't a delight to God. The new man must exercise. It is time to start lifting so that he might get stronger and stronger. We have a great light to lift. And as we see in the text next, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. Let's consider verses 29 through 36 in its entirety. The next portion of this, and we'll wrap with this, is seeking a sign rebuked. As we've already mentioned, they sought after a sign, uh, but he deals with it here starting in verse 29. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. I love that verse. I don't think Joel Osteen knows that verse. When the people are gathered thick together, God started preaching harder. When people are gathered thick together now, we just start to pacify them. You're doing pretty good. You're all great. Oh, isn't the Lord wonderful? But what's he say? This is an evil generation. Not going to get a lot of followers on Twitter with that one. This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it. Remember, this is the third time this has been dealt with. But the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment of the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is in the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, the whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, and whole shall be full of, the whole shall be full of light, and as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. I love that verse. Take heed therefore that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Back in verse 16 we saw the people ask for a sign of Jesus, authority to drive out the devil, And Jesus warns here that their seeking after a sign was an evidence of unbelief and a refusal to accept the evidence. A refusal to accept the evidence he'd already laid out a multitude of times, but specifically twice now he's answered this question. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, Paul writes, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's how he keeps his preachers humble. That was a joke. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. 
that's evidence. The Jews here are seeking after a sign. And uh, later, if you study through the New Testament, you'll see the Greeks require wisdom, specifically in Acts. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, he's talking about the red-hot Christian, the crazy-eyed Christian that'll walk the city of Corinth and give the gospel. The crazy-eyed Christian that'll tell grown men who are hard-hearted against one another, who are threatening and breathing out threatenings to other people, you must forgive. It's a crazy notion. It's God's. And it's a crazy principle to stand on. Preaching is foolishness, but it works. We are to be godlike. If we're neutral on these things, we're not godlike. Was he neutral? Could you imagine if God were neutral? If he just let things go? Genesis 3 happens. He says, okay, you lost the garden. Get out. But he's neutral. Adam and Eve are now bastards. They don't, he doesn't care for them anymore. He doesn't involve himself in their lives. He doesn't provide himself a promised seed. He says, you see what happens without me. And he lets them go. Wouldn't that be a definition of neutral? How far do you think it would have got? Lamech wrote some wonderful poems about how strong and powerful he was, if you recall from our Wednesday night studies. How far would we have gotten if Noah never had an ark? It would have ended right there. I'm giving you the answer. With a global flood and no mercy, no ark, no Jesus, it was over. But God. But God. Isn't it wonderful how he weaves in himself as a conjunction, uh, a conjunction word in Ephesians 2? What if there were only three verses, those first three verses? And what if, what was it, verse 12 and 13? What if it was just those five verses? We'd be without hope. No Jesus. What is our proof, our evidence, our sign then? The only sign he would give was the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Death. Burial. Resurrection. Get them crazy eyes on, because as this man's been teaching, this is a great fish experience. Can you imagine going home that day as the fish and trying to tell that story? What'd you do today, Nemo? I swallowed a man for three days, and I spit him out on land, and he rejoiced. He was mumbling inside of me for three days, praying of all things. Okay, hyperbole, right? So tell Jonah's version of the story, because that's the sign. He was cast into the sea, and the storm stopped. He was swallowed up and delivered to the exact spot he was supposed to go. And he did not not want to preach resurrection, or, or repentance, rather, to the Ninevites, because he didn't think they'd receive it. He didn't want to preach repentance to them, because he knew they would, and they would be heard. He knew that if they would repent, God would forgive them, and he didn't feel they needed to be forgiven. It was Jonah's heart, which seems to be ours as well, that if we don't give the gospel, then those who don't deserve forgiveness will never be forgiven. Remember what Mordecai said to Esther. God will deliver his people. God will not forsake his people. 
And if not by you, then you will blend in with these dead Persians when the smoke clears. Because God will not forsake his elect. It is my prayer that we're all used mightily in the sharing of the gospel. But if we're neutral, we won't be. Think of the sequence of events in the book of Jonah. In that book, as the title character Jonah was one with, the, he was the one with true authority and the ability to believe. If you think about the book, as he's already taught us some quite a bit of it, the first three chapters. That's all we see so far. The title character is the only one with the burden of the word of God. There were others in the earth, but he's the only one we're focused on. Others were made to see the true God at work in his pursuit of Jonah. Think of those people on that boat. They had experience in captaining that ship, and they were made to see a storm they couldn't handle. This would have been everyday life for them. To the point where they resort to a type of witchcraft, a, uh, a game of luck, if you will, and drawing straws to figure out what's going on. And after his time under the sea, Jonah preached the coming of God, and repentance abundantly followed. Warren Wearsby wrote, If Gentiles like the Queen of Sheba and the people of Nineveh believed on the basis of the message God gave them, how much more should the Jews of that day repent, having seen all he did and heard his messages? Privilege always brings responsibility, and the nation was sinning against a flood of light. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus was during his ministry, was he not? He was a flood of light. Think about the blind whose sight was restored. Bartimaeus for sure, but the one recently whose own parents said, let him speak for himself because they were in fear of being put without the synagogue. Was it not a flood of light as Christ washed over this man? Suddenly this man who couldn't see, who probably wasn't welcome as a, as a normal member of society, is now speaking against the Pharisees and the scribes. He's speaking out on behalf of God who did a work on him. Only a flood of light can do that. Are you saved? Do you indeed know the Lord Jesus Christ? Rise up, beloved. The end is coming near. And how much longer will we with our hands in our pockets walk around as though our concerns are here instead of there? If that's not the case, we're not giving others the impression that that's the truth. I'm afraid most of our daily lives riddled with frowns and unhappiness. I remember uh, when we lived in Denver, they are real sneaky about giving you speeding tickets out there. Unmarked vans and, and neighborhoods that would just take a picture of you and then mail you the ticket. And she was a little upset about the ticket. It was the first ticket I ever got, so it was, it was kind of cool but kind of bad at the same time. But I was more overtaken with the picture of me. Is that how unhappy I look when I'm driving all the time? And I was driving by myself, listening to music as loud as I want to, music I liked. I think she had just bought me an iPod, so it was the first time I ever had control over all that. And the picture of me just driving down the street, I looked miserable. I wonder if Paul walked down streets that way after Damascus Road. I don't think so. Not the way he writes. I wonder how you do it. How do you handle yourselves in public? Are you better than I am? Because unbeknownst to me, I look like a miserable buffoon just waiting to die. Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus taught on this light. He says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
How should we handle this light we are charged with carrying? Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul speaks to that. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What's Paul say instead? Run to obtain. What a charge we see from the Lord in Luke 11, verse 35. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Christianity is not a show. It is real inside and out, or it is not real at all, inside or out. A corrupt heart pumps corruption throughout the entire body, which I believe is why the Lord makes reference to the heart as the actual organ being replaced. It has influence over everything. The precious light that we have been charged to show must be seen, but in his third referencing of the parable of the lamp here in Matthew 5, verses 11 through 16, Mark 4, uh, 21 through 25 and Luke 8 16 through 18 those are the other two accounts Jesus emphasizes that it must be seen in the proper manner in other words not through a filter or with a shadow cast upon it 